reading from John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to uh, be here with you. I'd hoped to bring Jennifer and the boys uh, this first trip up here, but we just moved on Monday, and you know they've got worship at Palos after, and then a cookout, and the kids and nerves have been sort of frayed. They're two, four, and seven, and we just thought one church service is probably good for today, for everybody's well-being, including yours in this room. Um, but I am really grateful to be here. As I said, we just moved on. Monday, and there is so much about uh, this new call that God has given us that really feels like a gift to us. And of course, God is always giving gifts, and he's always extending kindness to his children, but there are some kindnesses of the Lord that are very painful, and some that are more pleasant, and this feels like a very pleasant kindness from God. And I, I chose this passage to look at together, our first Sunday together, because it explicitly speaks to what I really long for my life to be about and for our life as a broader church family to be about. And it's encapsulated actually in the mission statement of Trinity and Redemption, which as many of you know is to experience and extend the transforming love of Christ in our homes, our jobs, our communities, to experience it and to extend it. And this is a passage where Jesus, we're told he loved his disciples to the end, and so he engages in this really dramatic action in order to help them and us to experience his love. 
and in order to equip them to be the sort of community that he is building them into being. And so I want to talk about, I want to look together at how this text helps us to experience and extend the love of Christ. And just a little bit by way of introduction, it might be helpful for us to consider for a moment the opposite of experiencing and delighting in the love of Jesus. What is it that we're experiencing if we're not perceiving his love? Because this is something that uh, can actually really block and hinder our, our ability to be the sort of community we want to be together. And typically, you know, at least as English speakers, if we think what is the opposite of love, we tend to think first of the word hate, which is legitimate, of course. But there's a, a theme throughout many places in Scripture that's a bit more specific that helps us to name what it is we are feeling and experiencing when we aren't feeling loved. And that is shame. And we, uh, I think, actually live in a particular cultural moment that might actually make it easier for us to understand this. Because shame has become so much more of our public life. Think of politicians, controversial politicians, being accosted by their detractors in public, hollering at them, not, you are wrong, but shame, shame. You've seen YouTube clips of this, maybe, and news clips. Or you can think about the, uh, you know, the Twitter mobs that come after those who have public personas and have done something offensive, or at least perceived to be offensive, and a war of shame erupts against them. The reason I say that experiencing shame is the opposite of experiencing love, biblically, comes from all sorts of places throughout Scripture. Think about Daniel 12, chapter 2, which talks about final judgment in, uh, sorry, Daniel 12, verse 2, which talks about final judgment in these terms. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And likewise, salvation is described in Scripture at multiple points as being set free not only from sin and death and hell, but from shame. So the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, speaking of Jesus, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so eternal life is described as the ability to stand before God without shame. And eternal judgment is what it means to come into contact with God without having been cleansed and forgiven and to be entirely laid bare before him and to experience shame. And the reason this limits our ability to be the sort of community we are called to be is that shame causes us to hide. And you can't experience love and be a community of love. We can't do these things when we're hiding. And every since is sort of a lengthy introduction, but just track with me a minute. Every single one of us, even those who come across as the most profoundly confident, carry around shame within us. None of us would want everything about ourselves pasted up on a billboard for everybody to read. This is why uh, Chris Rock, the comedian, he has a line where he says, 
When you meet a person for the first time, you're not meeting that person. You're meeting their representative. You all know what he's talking about? I mean, if you're honest, you might say, yeah, in fact, I think my representative has been on duty this morning, even while I was shaking hands at the door. I mean, we know what this is like. And what we see in this, this passage, that there is a sort of experience of being exposed, which is typically a scary thought, even a sort of humiliation that is actually the gateway to experiencing the love of Christ and to being equipped to extend the love of Christ to one another in the church and to our, our neighbors. There's a sort of humiliation that is the gateway to experiencing and extending the love of Christ. So let's look at this text together more closely to see how this is so. And the first thing that we see here is that the Gospel of John invites us to marvel at the humiliation of God himself. God's own humiliation. John begins to set the scene in dramatic fashion. He says in verse 1, this was before the feast of the Passover and all throughout the gospel, Jesus has been identifying the meaning of these Jewish feasts with himself. He, you know, we're told earlier in John, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here, preparations are being made for the Passover. People are getting ready to slaughter lambs in homes all around Jerusalem. Preparations are being made at the temple. We're told that Jesus knew that his hour had come. This ominous term that has reappeared throughout John's gospel, typically, however, informing us that his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come, but now the hour has come. Jesus, knowing that his time had come to depart out of this world to the Father, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, knowing that he himself was God in the flesh, that he had come and that though he was going to die and be crucified for our sins, that he was going to be raised again and go back to God. It's hard to get more glorious than that. The devil having already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. This is a dramatic scene. Something great and glorious is about to happen. And Jesus, knowing these things, rose from supper. And he prepared himself to wash the feet of the disciples. Removing part of his garments, wrapping a towel around himself, and bending down to wash their feet. Many of you are probably familiar with this passage and you know that this was customary because those who came to a, a dinner together would have had to walk across a dusty road that they even shared with animals. And so as an act of hospitality, typically a servant, the lowest servant in the house, would wash the feet of the guests to refresh them before they, before they would eat. I, I've tried to think about something similar in our experience. And the, probably the closest thing I could think of would be the, typically it's men you see at airports shining shoes. And it's always obvious that if somebody is getting, it's usually his shoes shined, that this is a pretty affluent person. And the person doing it inhabits a much lower position culturally, socioeconomically. It's a humble thing to kneel on a floor in public and shine the shoes of another person. That 
might help us to feel something of what Jesus is doing. This is humiliating. This is humiliating. We really enjoy, I think most of us do, a good rescue story. And it's usually obvious that when a rescue takes place, even if the rescue itself is is kind of a dirty job, that the people performing the rescue are incredibly honorable and noteworthy. So you think about these children and their coach who were rescued from this cave system in Thailand that was flooded. I'm sure that was a dirty, unpleasant job. But it's easy for us to respect and to honor the, the, the medical staff and the military personnel scuba diving to get these children and to skillfully save every single one of their lives. But Jesus comes and his rescue mission is one that involves his being humiliated, on the floor washing feet half naked, and then shortly after this, stripped entirely naked and hung on a cross to die, while people walked past him, essentially shouting, shame, shame, shame. And we are told this is God in the flesh. It's the sort of thing that if we think about it, if you think about it, you can tell that the full extent of, <laughs> of these things just can't quite land on us. It's like imagining how many billions of galaxies there are. We know it is awe-inspiring, but we just don't even have the capacity to marvel the way we know the universe deserves to be marveled at. And likewise, this, this story of God coming in the flesh and being humiliated is just astounding. Some of you might be familiar with the writer, the devotional writer. He's been uh, gone for a little while now, Henry Nouwen. And if not, um, he was a man who was a professor first at Notre Dame, then at Yale, and then at Harvard. He was a Catholic priest and a professor of spiritual formation and psychology. And eventually, because of some things going on in his own life and heart, he left his prestigious post in academia and went to work at a place in Ontario called La Arche Daybreak Community with people who are profoundly uh, mentally and physically disabled. And he was paired as a one-on-one assistant for a young man named Adam, who was nonverbal and unable to do anything for himself. And so this, this highly acclaimed academic went to a place where he was out of the public eye literally cleaning the body of another human being as a way of life. That sort of act is incredible. It's profound. And yet even that is not as significant as the descent that Jesus experienced and the humiliation he experienced in order to come and to provide for us his love. And so We're first invited to just look at this, to just look at Jesus on the floor, humiliated. Look at Jesus on the cross, humiliated, taking at least this humiliating position and doing so in order to give us his love, in order to take our sins away from us, in order to make us clean, in order to redeem us so that all of us could simply by looking at him, by receiving him, by believing, by trusting, could be made clean and could have eternal life to look forward to 
if we will receive him, rather than eternal shame. So that's the first thing to see. We, we were invited to marvel at the humiliation of God himself. This is the first step in helping to overcome our own shame so that we can come home to God and, and, and embrace one another. Because when we recognize that Jesus would come and would wash us, there's no need to hide from him anymore. There's no need to hide from God in shame. The second thing we see here is that, therefore, in a certain sense, there is, we are to embrace our own healing humiliation. The sort of humiliation that actually heals us. And that's what we see here in this really wonderful encounter with Peter. Many of you know that Peter is always quick to speak his mind, and sometimes that goes really well for him, and sometimes it doesn't, but it's always entertaining and instructive for us because we can often see ourselves in Peter. So Jesus comes to Peter, and Peter can recognize that this is entirely socially inappropriate. This is not as what is meant to happen. And so he says very firmly to Jesus, Are you washing my feet? You shall never wash my feet. In the Greek language, this was written, and he actually uses a double negative. It's like, no, never. One of my children, who's uh, particularly spirited, uh, occasionally when we give him an instruction, he will say, never, and run away. That's the sort of thing <laughs> Peter... It's really more like never. There's no R yet. Uh, that's the sort of thing Peter's saying, like, no, no, no. It's never a good idea when we dictate to Jesus what will and what won't be taking place. But Jesus very calmly and kindly just says, well, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Peter says, well, then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head, too. Wash everything. Wash it all. And Jesus explains, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And what he's saying is that a person would have bathed and gotten ready to go to dinner so that when they arrived there, only the feet that had walked on the dirty road would be filthy. But of course, he's explaining something more deeply than contemporary Jewish customs, and he's addressing something more serious in Peter's heart than a simple misunderstanding of what Jesus would find improprietous socially. Why was Peter so resistant. Why was he resistant really to Jesus washing his feet? Because any time a person in the Gospels is resisting Jesus, it's because there's a significant matter of the heart taking place. You know, to have one's feet washed is to have somebody get down and to become intimately acquainted with that which is unsightly and unpleasant about you. And to have Jesus come and love us involves his washing us. And it involves welcoming him to come and to gaze upon what is unsightly and unpleasant. What reeks about our hearts, about our lives. And to cleanse us. That is why Peter is resistant. And yet... Jesus is saying to his disciples, to Peter and to all of them, if you want to have a part with me, if you want to experience fellowship with me, if you want to know what it's like to live a life wrapped up in my love, this is what it looks like. It looks like you ceasing to hide, ceasing to keep me at arm's length, even using propriety. Well, I don't need it. 
as your excuse and to let me to come and to wash you. And even more astonishingly, towards the end of the verse, he says to his disciples that just as he has washed their feet, we are to wash one another's feet. And, you know, I always, until like this past week, I always just thought of this as simply we need to be willing to humble ourselves to serve each other. But, of course, in the context of this passage, Jesus is not simply saying that we need to perform acts of kindness for each other, although he certainly intends for us to commit acts of kindness for one another. But certainly what he must mean is that part of how he provides for us the ongoing cleansing we need is through one another. And that therefore to be a community that experiences and extends the love of Christ, we have to be a community who lets one another get close to, our, to each other's feet, figuratively speaking. To see them and to smell them and to use by Jesus to wash them. I, uh, I found this actually a lot easier when I was younger. Uh, a younger Christian. I came to faith when I was 20, and there were certain seasons of life where I went to a Christian college, and I spent time working at a Christian camp, so not yet married with children, not yet fully into adult life, and involved in a lot of really intensive experiences where I was, was with other believers who were a lot like me, same station in life, same age, with them every day, and it became pretty easy uh, to experience pretty close fellowship with a lot of believers and to be really kind of more of an open book and to confess sins to one another and to challenge one another and to pray for one another. And I have found that uh, the further into adult life I get, even as a pastor, it's become a lot more difficult. It takes a lot more intentionality to have relationships where I can and do engage in this sort of foot washing, so to speak, with, with other believers. It is a lot easier to simply send out my representative who's always clean, whose feet could be, you know, on a magazine cover, than it is to go to a person and say, you know what, honestly, will you, will you just check these things out? <laughs> and invite them to say, yeah, we, we really need to take care of this over here, brother, to invite them to wash me. And so I, I just, we need to consider What does it look like in our households, in our small groups, in whatever other venues you might encounter one another in, to actually let one another in more fully? And to humbly, gently, tenderly, as Jesus does, be used by him to wash one another. Because when we do that, that is when we actually begin to experience a sense of not just being involved in trying to create an organization together, but actually living a life of communion with Jesus together. And then finally, third thing, and then we'll move toward the table and toward Croatia and England for those who are. And just briefly, we see here in this passage that we have a a sobering warning and a really wonderful encouragement. And the, the sobering warning comes in the character of Judas. We're told the devil had put it into his heart to betray Jesus. We we know that he ended up going out and doing just that. But Judas was at the table getting his feet washed. And Judas had been engaged in ministry with Jesus. He had preached the kingdom. 
He had, we can tell from the uh, other Gospels, when the disciples were sent out, he had cast out demons and healed people. And his heart was actually never in it. Jesus says, you are clean, but not all of you. Judas's heart had never been made clean. He had never actually believed. He had joined Jesus' entourage. He'd been busy with ministry activity. But he had never come to Jesus to clean him, to wash his heart for forgiveness, for renewal. And friends, we, we just have to be careful because we can be in a room like this and we can be a Judas. But we can still come anytime, anytime, and say, Lord, I don't want to just be all about ministry activity or, or, or just coming to church for appearances or pressure or whatever. I actually need you to wash me. doesn't matter if it's been years of never having done that. He won't turn you away. And that is a warning to us. There's also an incredible encouragement. And that comes from these words we already looked at where Jesus says, the one who is already bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. What Jesus is getting at in this sort of dramatic form is what the Apostle John writes in his first letter. These famous words, you've probably used them after confession of sin many times. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This means that when you are living as a Christian and you look down and recognize my feet have gotten filthy, I, I can't believe I blew up in anger again, or I can't believe that you know, it had been two years and then I went online again to a place that I should not have gone or whatever. I realize I've, I've been greedy or I've been more prone to complaining than giving thanks. My feet have gotten filthy. Jesus still says to you, you're still clean. I've still made you clean which is kind of Old Testament language for being acceptable to God and able to come into his presence. You did muddy up your feet. You do need to be washed. But you don't have to fear that you are now somehow not welcome with me just because your feet have gotten filthy. I will cleanse you. I will wash you again and again and again. And you think of how often would a person in the ancient world have needed to wash their feet. And how often should we wash our feet, especially in weather like this? Every day. Every day, you can come to Jesus. You ought to come to Jesus. We ought to come to Jesus and say, "Ah, I kind of walked through the mud again. And he will gladly kneel down once again and wash us. The blood that he spilled the next day on the cross is still sufficient to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I, uh, I, uh, there's a, a PCA pastor, um, actually he was formerly a pastor, now he's doing some other stuff, but he used to be at a church in Charlottesville called Greg Thompson, named Greg Thompson, and he was a guy whose sermons I would listen to occasionally just to encourage myself because they're so good, and I always have this like paradigm shift hearing him speak. And uh, he, he has a sermon where he's actually preaching about Jesus and the woman at the well um, and Jesus' love for her. But he, he uses a little bit of his own personal biography to illustrate what he's getting at. And he says, you know, in my, something like this. When I first became a Christian, I knew Jesus as Jesus the forgiver. You know, the person who forgave me of my sins so that I wouldn't have to go to hell and I could go to heaven. He's not eschewing that at all. Amen. Jesus forgives us. 
But he said, then secondly, I got to know Jesus, the thinker. You know, the person who equipped me with a worldview so that I could understand culture and uh, critique the world around me and take every thought captive and that sort of thing. Jesus does renew our minds, absolutely. Then I knew Jesus, the worker. You know, the one who sends me out to take part in his, his work of redemption. Sends me out to be active, to do justice and to love mercy, to do mission, that sort of thing. And he says, but it wasn't really until halfway through being pastor of this church where he served currently that I really began to get to know Jesus the lover. And he invited his people to, to you know, focus with him on knowing Jesus the lover. And what this text is showing us is that what it means to know Jesus the lover, because it says here that having loved his own disciples, he loved them to the end. And so this is an enactment that's supposed to help us to experience and feel his love. It's know him as the one who will come to us and wash us again and again and who will use us to wash one another. So let's, let's be a community that does this, that, that looks at the humiliation of God that, that took place because of his love for us, the humiliation that will stoop to wash, that will go to a cross, and let's be the sort of people who will be open to experiencing the sort of healing humiliation together where we really let each other get close, see one another's feet, and wash each other. And as we do that, we will experience communion with Christ together, and, and we will be propelled more and more uh, into our communities to make this love of Jesus known to others. Let's pray together, and then we will go to our time of confession. Father, we want more of this for ourselves. It is so easy to begin to relate to Jesus merely as one of these things, the one who forgives us so we have a sort of assurance for later, which is, of course, essential, or the one who equips us to think rightly about doctrine and about the world, or the one who sends us to, to do good in the world, which of course he does, but help us as the foundation and the goal of all of these things to know Jesus is the one who loves us. Help us to experience more communion with him and with, with you, our, our glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.